There's only one way to start this podcast. Play the jingle. Welcome to Knowing Me, Knowing Ed, You, with Jeff Barton. Now, every time I say those words... Some of those are hard, aren't they? Well, no, I have to resist the urge, oh, okay. because I'm naturally quite a cheesy, yeah. cheesy guy. Well, you're about I, to find I, that I can beat you in any department of cheese. Okay, but it just feels quite natural, like it should just follow, and um, I have to battle with that internally. Um, anyway, thanks for being a guest on our podcast, Jeff. Um, please, could you briefly introduce yourself and what you do? Uh, Yeah, I'm Jeff Barton. I am now the General Secretary of ASCOL, the Association of School and College Leaders. We've got, I think, what probably is the best motto in the world. We speak on behalf of members, we act on behalf of children, and I think you can't get better than that. And I've been doing the job since the 18th of April, and I remember that date very precisely because after my first hour in the job, Theresa May called a general election, so it was a kind of act of gross one-upmanship and so that's still your son. yes she was trying to say right put put him in his place um and if i've done my homework well you've been an english teacher a head of english a deputy head a head teacher you've written or edited over 50 books on grammar and literature as well as written countless articles for the tes and others you've a collection of 50,000 american radio jingles uh, i I think that might say something about your, your, your literacy or numeracy. It's probably 500,000. 500,000? Probably. Let's, okay. not, let's not get into that. <laughs> right. But that's a big difference. Um, I've heard you were influenced by the, the great Noel Edmonds and were once a hospital radio DJ. Yeah. You also like to cook, read and write. Is there anything else that I should add? Uh, in terms of what, what I do, I mean, that, that would probably encapsulate. Yeah, I do. I, I like spending time with family and friends and eating drinking and stuff like that. So I'm not, you know, the most sporty of people. I mean, though I'm, as a head of a sports college as I was, I did see the transformational power of sport yeah. a lot. So I became really interested in that. Well, I've seen um, some nice photos on your Twitter feed of the outdoors. So I'm yes. imagining you sort of you get out and about as well. Yeah, I've got a bike. And so I go out uh, and uh, uh, I go out cycling. I'm in Suffolk a little bit. And then my son said, you know, if you want to keep fit, you ought to vary that. You ought to just not cycle. You ought to go running and I'm, a, I'm probably the most self-conscious runner so I go at the early hours oh, in order that no one actually sees me doing that. Hence the sunset shots and things like that. Exactly. I'm a terrible runner, I don't really get on with it, I have to chase something. Um, so the purpose of this podcast is to get to know about you as much as it is to talk about what you do in education but we'll end with the big question that we always ask and that is what change to the education system would you make if you were in charge for the day? But if we can start with your school experience, what was life like for a young Jeff Barton? What was your experience of school? Uh, Well, the the bit before school, actually, was an odd one in the sense that I've got um, a brother who's, I think, 10 years older than me and a sister who's 15 years older than me. So my parents had kind of thought that they'd done their family stuff, right? And then what happened is, uh, as she used to tell the story, my mother went to the doctor with what she thought was a heavy cold and found that she was five months pregnant. So it means that the young Jeff Barton arrived to a certain surprise, and it suggests my mother's grasp of biology was, you know, supremely good. Um, and therefore, there was a funny sense that my parents, because they were older, uh, and because my brother and sister would be leaving home when I, you know, hit ten or something like that, I was brought up very much as a kind of only child. So I was. Uh, and, and it was an only child who wasn't kind of overly indulged. They, they were great with me, but they just kind of let me do yeah. what I wanted to. It was, it was great, very liberating kind of uh, childhood in a way. And so I think I always used to resent school. I think school kind of got in the way of just wanted to mess around at home. And so I didn't really get on with school. And I had 
I struggle with some subjects, but I struggle most of all with concentration and being interested in stuff. And that's not to say I was disruptive. I was occasionally, I think, I was class clown a little bit. It just didn't really work for me, school. I didn't, didn't enjoy it. And I was on a kind of trajectory I had thought to leave at 16 to become almost inevitably the next Radio 1 DJ. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds like you're describing, apart from the DJ bit, my, my time at mm. school. Um, it's a boy thing, I think. I, I was thinking about this today because, you know, there's reports out on social mobility and so on. And, um, and it's quite an indictment, really, of our society, a splintered society and a splintered system of education and so on. I think the schools are hugely, supremely better than they were when I went to school. I think, you know, the kind of the routine vandalism, the sense of not being important, not being known to most people there. It was a very soulless kind of experience, I think, schools. I went to a comprehensive school. Lots of good staff. I still am in touch with my English teacher. He was the bright spot in the whole thing. But golly, I wouldn't trade school as it was then with school as it is now for people. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, do you have any standout memories of your time at school? Because when I look back, it's funny how you should describe your schooling. I can only think of the sort of the, the mischievous stuff rather than any sadly any other sort of inspirational experiences. I remember kind of quirky pockets. There was a, a, a bloke who was, um, I think he was a biology teacher, he must have been head of biology, who was in the magic circle and he ran uh, what I think he called the magic circle club, right? And he would occasionally do assemblies where he would, you know, make things disappear and so on. And so he was, he was kind of quirky. And I, people would be amazed by this, but I, in order to get into that club you had to do a magic trick right and I didn't have the confidence to learn a magic trick to go and do it and frankly I, I suspect that whatever you did you'd get into the club it was just part of the deal and I, I was an incredibly shy self-conscious kid all the way through primary and, and secondary so I didn't ever join the magic circle club but in a way what I'm saying is there were pockets of quirkiness in that school and so I can remember that and it was the English teacher Roy Sampson his quirkiness which particularly made me think, ah, there's someone here who is not is not mainstream. He's kind of he, he does things which are distinctive. One of the things that he did actually was uh, he taught drama, and I, uh, I I I had unexpectedly and ill-advisedly been chosen for the school swimming team. This goes back to primary school, and I didn't want to swim for the school. I didn't want to do swimming at all. I wanted to go to drama club, which Roy Sampson taught and there was a one evening when there was a kind of gala against some other schools and instead of going to swim on behalf of the school I went to drama club and someone came and got me you know, they sent a, a runner uh, called me in in front of the visiting school and, and our school and I was kind of publicly told off for letting the school down it was all that you know you haven't just let yourself down you let the school down and stuff and I, at that point I became more adamant that I wasn't going to swim for the school I, I, I was I just didn't want to do it. And the drama became more and more important. And I think like a lot of people who like drama, this is where the radio comes in as well. There is a way of concealing yourself behind the performance there. Radio is, a, is, is the most personal medium to be able to do that. And so people assume you're extrovert. You could actually be very introvert with that. And I got involved in doing a lot of school plays and that kind of thing, drama. And for a while I thought I want to be an actor. Except that like the couldn't audition for the magic circle. I couldn't face what it would be like to be auditioning to be an actor. I mean, I, I probably thought about doing it for 24 hours and then realised it would be totally wrong for me psychologically. So. In what way has your experience of school informed your approach to teaching and being a school leader? I think th this sounds terribly pompous, but I remember talking to um, Deputy Head uh, Wynne Rees, who I've worked with for many years, and his experience of school was a bit like mine, a bit like yours. We were kind of detached from it, you know, a bit contemptuous, I think. And he, I remember him saying to me, should we tr just try and create a school where we can say, surely we can do it better than they used to do it? <laughs> and there was that. And then we used to, uh, at King Edwards, put a lot of energy into making the school non-schooly. So, you know, the big decision about turning the bells off, for example, of having uh, flowers around the school, plants, uh, big pictures, things which you, you actually see quite routinely now, but then was seen as a little bit avant-garde and making the school look less schooly, of saying to the students, we'll guarantee that your toilets are as good as the staff toilets. We'll put, we'll put uh, it has to be said, plastic flowers. 
in there, but if there's ever any soap missing, you tell us straight away, the caretaker will make it a priority to do it. It was that notion that we talk to students differently, a little bit, um, and tried to create a culture which they were responding to. And for the majority of them, I think they, I met one of my students at um, a restaurant in Leicester the other day by, by just coincidence. She'd been head girl there and she left in 2008. And she said to me plaintively, she says, I loved that school. She said, I loved watching the way it was developing and transforming and this kind of thing. I loved being part of that, she said. And then what she said is the killer line. She said, I'm a management consultant. I wish I worked in a school and I could do that. And it just reminds you that that ability to be able to work with the next generation, the optimism of the next generation, to change, it always sounds a bit too grandiose, but that you, that's essentially what you are doing when it works, changing people's outlook, giving them opportunity. I love doing that. And there's not many jobs where you can do that and, and have that connection to the end goal so close to you, the, the, the product, if you like, to put it quite plainly. Yes, there's that. It's also in terms of teaching, and this may well be, this will be one area that people would disagree with, probably, is that I am more and more convinced that we must not get into trying to over-control teaching, to making teaching robotic. And I know, obviously, we want consistency and we want to make sure that if you're in teacher X's English classroom, you're going to get the same basic experience as teacher Y. But that doesn't mean that you need teacher Y and teacher X to be following exactly the same plan. And I think there is a sense that we will look back and think we might have deprofessionalised teachers somewhat mm. by not just saying to them, look, you've got a degree in English, try some things out. We're going to mentor you with someone who's been around longer. We're not doing that for performance management. We're doing it because we want you to have a professional dialogue with them. And I think that that will be the next breakthrough in terms of education as we start to say it's all about the teachers and we've got a terrible track record of losing about 30% of teachers after five years here. We need good people to want to stay in the classroom. Yeah. Well, I want to um, bring that sort of phase of, of, of your life to a, to a close and ask, are there any particular uh, bands or, or books that you remember from that time of, of growing up that sort of define those years? Well, um, my interest in uh, radio and Radio 1 meant that whilst uh, after kind of 7 o'clock and particularly 10 o'clock on Radio 1, it, I was growing up in the era of punk, right? but I wasn't listening to that. I didn't want to like listening to John Peel. And I, I, did, I, I kind of like the undertones now, but at the time I thought they were out, you know, an outrage because I, I was into the kind of disco era, and so I would be listening to Earth, Wind and Fire. And, this kind of thing, and that put me at odds with all my friends. But that those songs sounded great on the radio. They're big, punchy songs that have been played on American radio, which I used to get tapes sent across for. So I would, so musically, I would remember all of that kind of late seventies disco era, uh, which I loved. Loved the tight production of it. And in terms of books, um, that's when I started reading. Really, it was because of. Uh, I mean, when I said to Roy Sampson, who was my English teacher. I think I'm going to become an English teacher, uh, and it was because of him really. And he he said, "Great, you're going to spend the rest of your life reading stories." And essentially, that's what I've done. And he he inspired me so much that if anybody, this still happens, if anybody mentions a book that I haven't read, I get it. I just uh, I, I just like being I just like reading stuff. Um, and of course, with the, Amazon, it's so easy to do that, so I spend a fortune, I have yeah, to yeah. hide these parcels, I smuggle them into the house. <laughs> um, but it would be, therefore, the books that kick-started that would be the books I read with Roy Sampson at A-level, Tess of the D'Urbervilles would be one, first experience of Shakespeare there. I mean, classic A-level English lit, but it made me realise I could read complicated stuff and I could enjoy it, and he helped me to navigate my way through it. So you're an easy person to buy for at birthdays and Christmas? In some ways. I mean, I don't know what you're like. It, I remember buying a book for uh, someone I knew, and he said, look, it's really nice of you. He said, but I like to buy my own books. He, he kind of, he, there is something that about a kind of tyranny at Christmas when you've got seven books given to you, and you've still got your own pile of books. I've yeah. got piles and piles of books. Um, so I'm always flattered by it. But, gosh, you know, time is too short to be able to get through all of, all of my own collection of unread books yet. So... Uh, Give, give, give me a book token. Okay, there we go. If anyone's <laughs> looking to buy Jeff Barton a Christmas present, you would like book token. Um, okay, and um, would you pick a song? Can you pick a song um, that we can play in this podcast um, from that era of your life? 
Can you pick one stuff? Well, if if the era is a kind of transition from uh, young adult into adult life, so just kind of the the stepping out of home going to university, yeah. there was yeah. a particular song, and I love it, and it will. When people hear it, it won't be a surprise that it's the kind of song I like because it's got these kind of shimmering production values. And it's Donald Fagan. Um, Donald Fagan used to be with Steely Dan. Uh, and Steely Dan always produced these immaculate, beautiful, clever, provocative songs. And as an English teacher, you know, whereas you don't really listen to Earth, Wind and Fire for the lyrics, you do listen to Steely Dan and Donald Fagan for the lyrics. And there's a song called New Frontier in which he is essentially growing up in the 1950s. He obviously met a girl at a party and he's singing this song about why she should go down into this kind of nuclear bunker that his father's built. It's in the, it's in the kind of Cold War period. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a silly, beautiful, clever, ironic love song. It's New Frontier. So what did you do after school? I read that you were a hospital DJ and that you quite fancied being a head waiter. <laughs> Don't know you read that. It was another interview. You, you head liked, waiter. liked the idea of being a, I think it was a Cambridge assessment. Um, when you were head, they interviewed you. And I think um, 
that was something that you said you quite fancied doing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I get, I get it. Yeah. So um, from school, uh, so I, I, I got pretty poor uh, O level results. Right, I got five. I think I got three C's and two B's or something like that. So I always remember my mother when she saw them. She, she said um, with um, ca- characteristic pithiness, uh, failure. Uh, so that kind of put me in my place there. Drifted into a sixth form purely because of the kind of sympathy vote of the staff there who thought, you know, let's have him in the sixth form. That's when I met Roy and was taught um, very well in English and did well in my other subjects, pretty much. Uh, and that's when I decided to go to university. Uh, and it was to do English, and I chose Lancaster. I'd never been to Lancaster, but I'd heard it was a good course and uh, loved it, really well taught. Did some linguistics with it as well. Had a slightly awkward first weekend actually because Lancaster you had to choose three subjects. So I, I just knew all I wanted to do was English really. So I chose education because I thought, well, that'd be useful. And then I chose theatre studies. And the trouble was you had to do like an audition for theatre studies uh, over the weekend. And uh, after the first day of rolling around the floor, kind of pretending to be animals in a zoo, I just went to the tutor and said, look, this. I just don't think this is for me. I think I'm too self-conscious. I can't do this. And he said, Jeff, Jeff, you don't really think you're going to have a year of rolling around the floor being a zoo animal. It'd just be fine. And so I carried on for the next day of the auditions, got through, got onto the course, spent the whole year rolling around the floor pretending to be zoo animals. I mean, it was just excruciating. I just didn't... Any lingering thought of becoming, you know, an actor or anything to do with the theatre was crushed out of me at that point. So... I was able to drop that and just concentrate on the English and linguistics for the second, third year. The head waiter actually thing is is as I got more money and I like to go and eat out. I see. The job that I look at is the person who has got this real sense of accomplished, knowing who the customers are, making you feel you're the most special person there. There's a, a restaurant you will have seen on my Twitter feed in Aldborough, which is a particularly a particular favourite of mine. And Sam, who runs that place, it's just and it's just a kind of bistro place. The food is terrific. He makes that feel a million dollars. It is an extraordinary gift. He remembers everybody's name. He'll remember what you had to drink last time. It is just gorgeous. And I just love that real sense of style, making people's experience yeah. great. And it goes back a bit like being the DJ between the songs. I was just going to say that Sam. exactly that is your point about adding, adding value, value to the to the to, to life to the food, the music, to, to, yeah. to everything. Yeah. So. I'm not going to give up on the hospital DJ thing. What oh, yeah. happened? Well, um, hosp- so the hospital DJ thing had started when I was uh, kind of 14, 15. So I was doing hospital radio. So I uh, did a number of shows. So I did a kind of a Sunday lunchtime show. Lunch with a punch, we used to call it. So I used to do that. And, uh, and of course, the thing with hospital radio is you never knew how many people were listening. And I think we, we kind of grudgingly thought no one was listening. I actually think, because they had the choice of, you know, all the BBC stations. Right. And occasionally what would happen, like there'd, there'd been a group of young men who'd been hurt in a car crash, right, and they were kept in hospital for about a week. And so we used to get these calls saying, could you play status quo? So, you know, in this hospital playlist where we've been playing Montevani and Tijuana Brass and so on and so forth, suddenly, because we knew we had an audience, we just play, you know, heavy metal and stuff like that because and then they'd phone in saying love it could you play some more and you you felt for the first time there might be an audience out there who actually kind of understood what you were saying and were taking it in so hospital radio the reason for choosing Lancaster is they had a university radio station and uh, I'd been tipped off about it and so as soon as I arrived first weekend I went to what was then called University Radio Bailwick and uh, got a show on a late on a Friday night Uh, terrible slot for me because I wanted to be playing my kind of music. And what yeah. the students wanted to hear at 10 o'clock on a Friday night was probably not Earth, Wind and Fire and Donald Fagan. And so I'd met this other guy from Liverpool or somewhere, and he said, and he was really into kind of, kind of new wave music, which was then kind of coming through just post-punk. So it was the kind of new romantic stuff. It was Haircut 100. And people. Uh, so he would program it. And it's a sign of how I wasn't particularly interested in the music. I was interested in just linking it. So he would program the music, and I would just do my links and do phoning competitions. And actually, that time of night on a Friday, you get quite a lot of people would phone you in. Sometimes coherent. Yeah, right. I was going to say, <laughs> not hard. Sometimes. Yeah. So I did that, and then I was doing the Saturday lunchtime show. And how I do you loved it? How do you prepare for a radio show? 
I imagine there's an awful lot of work goes into it. Uh, not now there isn't, because it's all kind of it's all pre-programmed. All the songs are chosen for you. All the jingles are. Yeah. Going. You have to remember with me, I, it was largely an excuse to play jingles. I mean, that was right. what I wanted to do. So it's amazing that it wasn't about the music. <laughs> it wasn't really about <laughs> talking. It was so you could play jingles. Well, no, there's an element to that. I, I just like this idea you could create this kind of uh, this sound or this ambience. And so, I would I was very influenced when I was at uh, University Radio Bale Rig by the fact that I'd been going across to the USA because my sister lived there. And she lived just outside Philadelphia. So from there on AM, you could hear the big New York stations, WABC, WNBC, WNEW. And then you could hear big stations from Philadelphia on uh, AM and FM. WCAU FM was the new hit music station in town. So I was hearing these great new formats. And what I then did in, you know, for Lancaster University students was to recreate them. I've got some audio of this at home it is chronic I mean it is so terrible but it was me playing at being American DJ you didn't mm-hmm. venture into an accent did you? I didn't no, no I didn't do that kind of transatlantic Tony Blackburn thing no no, no, no. so it was uh, it was great it was it was one of those things which for a for a campus university which can be a fairly bleak place at weekends it meant that what I was doing I had a kind of hub where in fact I used to do the sports show for a, for, for a while, but you, you know I've got no interest in sport at all. And I was with a guy who had a minimal interest in sports, so he'd read the sports results. I would play music, I mean just talk about things. That was the kind of Mark and Lard yeah, yeah. of University Radio Bailery for us. So uh, yeah, and then I waved goodbye to my radio career and went into teaching. And why did you go into teaching? I mean, you decided before then, before university, did you? Yeah, I had. A, I think I decided at A level actually that I wanted to, to to do what Roy Sampson did. I wanted to be able to take complicated things and to make them simple, but not too simple in a way that um, that notion of explaining things. And I, I remember, you know, at home when I was reading Test of the Durbels and stuff. I remember kind of extemporising as if I was teaching to a group, explaining things, and I was doing it partly to revise it, but partly because I was practicing. Yeah, could I explain stuff? Um, and that probably shows that more than I had realised that teaching was something that I wanted to do. That's quite meta, isn't it? You were, you were sort of Bizarre, working at that level. I think it's. I think it's. I've always liked um, exposition. So I, I'm, I, I like nothing more than going to a lecture, for example. Uh, so so d- d- don't give me kind of experiential learning and post-it notes and role play, please, and rolling around the floor being a zoo animal. Just tell me stuff. I love experts. A lot of the stuff I read is non-fiction by experts. So I will sit and listen and make notes. I love it. That's what I do. And I think maybe I was practising doing that, really. I'm quite envious because I, I have to do... Uh, if I if someone just stands and talks to me for mm. two hours, there's I mean, just they've got not to, much They've got to be good. But, that, but in a way, what, what I became more and more interested in, it happened through university in a strange kind of way, is that I did Bunacamp. UNAC, which is the British University's North American Club, which is like Camp America. So you would go out for eight weeks, 12 weeks to American summer camps and teach. And so I was teaching swimming, of all things there, uh, and found I was good at it with kids who were terrified of the water. And these were kids coming from New York, coming up to a lake in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you had to confiscate knives and guns from them first. Uh, and I found that those those I could help those kids to overcome that terror of going into a lake and swimming I, I, I can look back and see I was quite good at that um, and I think what that camp allowed me to do is it allowed me to build my skills in teaching one-to-one and then what at the time I didn't like but happened they promoted me and they promoted me to call me um, program director who was the person who was kind of running the program there and so what I did then was apart from the kind of basic activities of archery and all the stuff that they did, I used to do special themed days and special themed evenings. So we would have a space alien day, for example, and we used to have a tannoy system. And I'd wake the kids up by getting someone to announce everybody quickly to breakfast, space alien attack, space alien attack, and just do these things where the kids were saying, what's going on today? And, and we painted someone green, and he walked down, you know, to be the space alien who was coming to meet us. That's that playing around being quirky, being distinctive, was something which as Roy Sampson had done as a teacher. He'd set the biology pond on fire when he was teaching about the um, 
So he did quirky things, I did quirky things at camp. And I think kind of enjoyed the fact that I was then programming some of these interesting events. And one of the bits of that that I now recognise in what I do when I speak is I became interested in how you can manipulate people's emotions, if I can put it in solid kind of pejorative terms. So for example, on the last night of summer camp, which was always a big thing, because kids have been there sometimes 12 weeks, out of 12 weeks, I used to... Um, I got Jack, who was the chef, to cook a special meal, and we made special menus, and we had special music playing. And it was an emotional evening. And then what I got someone to do was to make the name of the camp, Camp McAllister it was called, and we made it out of wood, and we wrapped it in uh, cloths which had been soaked in uh, diesel, this kind of thing. And so as the night drew on, we would take all the kids to the window, set fire to this, and so you'd see, burning against the sky, Camp McAllister. And I remember this. Pressing a button on a, it was a cassette player, and suddenly what you heard was Whitney Houston singing, I believe that children are our future, teach them well and let them live. And at a certain point, you couldn't hear the song because of the tears of people crying. And I remember thinking, I've created this, I've created this emotion here. And part of you thought, blimey, what a lot of you know, power in this. But also, what a lot of fascination. And I know what I do now, like I've been talking to, to heads and deputies and people today. I, I, I'm interested in rhetoric and how do you tell a story and how do you give a kind of emotional kick behind what you're doing. And I, yeah. I think a lot of that traces back to all of that stuff at, at, um, uh, at, u at university and at summer camp. Yeah. And I, Sorry, I, that was a very long answer, so I apologise. Yeah, that, that's all right. I was going to say, that's why you're not allowed back into America. Setting fires. <laughs> I thought it was going to all end like, in, with no, fire engines. It was extraordinary. extraordinary. And it was that sense, and it was, it was what we tried to do at King Edwards with couldn't we do it better than our school used to be, that yeah. notion of win another. Of what will be memorable for these kids? And we put a lot of time yeah. into trying to make assemblies memorable, trying to make the place feel memorable because you've got one chance at school and it'd be great to look back and think like Katie who I met you know in Leicester the other that had a real effect on me yeah seizing but the day making making memories exactly. and, and, and yeah it, it is a lot about stories and I, I yeah. totally get where you're coming from um so I, I want to talk a bit about personal interests so how and why does someone amass a collection of 500,000 jingles yeah, so jingles are the six-second songs that tell you the name of a radio station. Yeah. Right? They are um, made um, made all over the world, but they, they were traditionally made chiefly in Dallas, for reasons I shan't bore you with. So Dallas was the kind of jingle capital of the world. And when I went and visited my sister, I would hear the jingles I had heard on Radio 1 and Radio 2 being sung for the WMGKs, WABCs over there. So you start to think, right, this has got the same track, same singers, but it's different name of a station. Who makes these things? And so I'd written to the programme controller at Radio 1, who gave me the address, and so I then wrote to Jam Creative Productions, as they're called, and they sent me some tapes, and I just got hooked on these things. I thought, wow, these are so... They're so pristine, they're so short, they're so precise. They sparkle, they add magic to radio. There's loads of styles of them. And if you think about it, you know, if they, if they send you a tape which has got 50 of these things on them, and you then start to collect them. And on the internet, you can collect them all the time. It doesn't take that long to get half a million. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, whether you I mean, want to, it's quite a You're talking about thing. getting tapes from America <laughs> sent over to you. Nearly does. Yeah, and I used to in those days. because, I mean, basically, what, what the reason they would send the tapes is because they thought you were a programme director of a, of a radio station. So I would tell a tiny white line, pretend I might be a programme director. And they quickly sussed out that I wasn't. And so I then, because my sister lived in America... I'd use her address so they get sent to Philadelphia and she'd then forward them to me over here. So I built a, a, a really big collection of these these silly little songs, which I then just got rid of. Well, I put them in the attic. Uh, and then suddenly, when I became head, actually, in 2002, I found them in the attic, started listening to them again, and realised these were these had been an important part of my life. And uh, there's worse things to collect, aren't there? You know, it's not like oh, heroin. Definitely. It's not like yeah, heroin, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm quite fascinated by other people's fascinations, as yeah. long as they're kind of yes, not, not harmful and legal. Yeah. Um, so I think it's fascinating, and I must admit, I've listened to a few on your website, mm. and 
I've quite quite enjoyed them. But the strange I've thing is, I've actually it's brought nice being Jeff. I brought you an. Yeah, well, I brought you. I actually brought you a, one of my CD maxes, which I give to oh, that's okay, staff. You. That's got it's nice knowing Jeff. But uh, the, so so that allows me to keep in touch with this silly DJing interest that I used to have. But the other thing that happened is that the guy who makes I think the best ones in the world said to me uh, three years ago. He said, "Why don't you come and visit us in Dallas? Why don't you come?" And, See, and said one half term, February half term, I, I flew across to Dallas and spent four days sitting in studios watching these people making these jingles, made a video of it, um, just loved it. And it was a it was a bit of a dream come true, seeing the magic behind the scenes that creates the magic on the air. Yeah. And these people that have to sing really obscure names. They um, do. They're quite interesting, those people. And make they, an art of it. They, they turn up, I mean, they... Union law there means that they, they start singing at 10, they finish singing at 2, usually if they do a four-hour session with a 20-minute break. They turn up not having seen any of the music or any of the lyrics. They go into a studio, seven of them usually, sometimes five, and bang, they just, they are so impressive. They just know exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what they do for a living. Yeah. But it's, um, it's the mantle of the experts. And I said a minute ago, I like experts talking yeah. to me. I like experts singing at me as well. So. And so are you, just quickly then, because I'm still quite fascinated by this, are you recognised, a recognised collector in the world of jingle collectors? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm seen as one of the veterans because I, I have an interest that, that, although I wasn't listening to radio in the 60s because I was born then, I've got a collection of all the 60s, the pirate stuff, the big stations in America and so on. So I've got this kind of extensive back catalogue of jingles. So yeah, I'm seen as you know. If you, I don't know if I'm the go-to person for insights because I'm not very systematic in cataloguing. I just got them on my computer and all over the place. But I can usually find if someone said, "Have you got a you know, radio Suffolk or Sophie or something? Have you got any radio Suffolk jingles?" And actually, they're they're not very good radio Suffolk jingles. I, I haven't, but I can usually find someone who's got those. So yes, I'm kind of connected in the. Mysterious, murky. You're bizarre. a jingle dealer, <laughs> in some respects. Yeah, no money passes hand. You understand? Yeah, okay. <laughs> My boys, uh, who are now twenty four and twenty one, did say to me, "Dad, at your funeral, shall we play the oh. It's Nice Knowing Jeff song? And Definitely. is there any chance you could have it? Because the, the lyrics go, It's Nice Knowing Jeff.' And I said to John Wolfert, the guy who makes the jingles, wouldn't it be great if we could just change it to It Was Nice Knowing Jeff? And he says, I'll do it for you. Um, I've got some quick fire questions. Fire them. Okay. Favourite meal? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, that's hard. I, I do love curry. I like spicy food, so I'll probably have a curry of some kind. Okay. Can you give me a favourite book? Um, probably. I've got a big sentimental attachment to Tess of the D'Urbervilles for all its flaws. Tess of the D'Urbervilles, yeah. Okay. And film? On Golden Pond, which is a beautiful, heartbreaking film with uh, Henry, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, Catherine Hepburn. It's a weepy, I like sentimental uh, films. Okay. Uh, a piece of writing you're most proud of? Uh, of mine? Uh, to be honest, I, I wrote a book called, um, what was it called? How to Teach, uh, which was a follow-up to a book about li literacy. And I wrote it quickly. And I look back at it now, and it's, it, it was designed to tell you the things that no one will tell you. How to stand, how to open a door, when to pause. I mean, all the kind of silly little skills of, of teaching. I, I reread re bits of that the other day. I think it's, it's, it's cute. It's the kind of thing as an NQT I would like to have. Someone yeah. going to advise okay. me on that. That's great. Uh, can you give us a favourite radio uh, DJ? Um, favourite radio DJ is a difficult one. Uh, it would probably be someone from the from the states or it could be someone like Barsky who was the did the breakfast show on WCA UFM so it won't be known to your okay. American DJs were always the ones who really did it for me I think right and at this point um, I would like to ask again have you got another piece of music that you could give us that kind of characterizes or, or well I have but I'm not sure from... you want to you won't want to play the whole thing but I, I just figured for what way the conversation's gone what I should give you is the jam song so what jam did jam is the company that makes these jingles they made a song about their jingles about how they're made and my kids have been brought up listening to that song they inflict that on them and they sing along to it it just kind of shows the cleverness of all of that and if, if i was ever on desert island disc i would definitely have the jam song as one of my songs and it captures that whole 
era for me of when I had been interested in jingles. Then I stick them in the attic and then I rediscover them. And how now, <laughs> slightly with some embarrassment, uh, it keeps recurring as a, as a thing. And so the jam song, I'll give it to you and you can listen to it. Jeff, you became General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders at the start of this start of this year? April. April. Having worked in schools for over 30 years, how did you find the transition from being based in school and so close to the action front line to, to your role now? Well, I had been head for 15 years. Uh, and I have to say, I knew that I was going to lead the school. I, I just could tell that having implemented a lot of changes and so on, that the school needed someone new and I did. So there was a sense in which my mindset was geared up to leave that school. What I didn't know is what I was going to do. And I thought I was going to go and do kind of literacy consultancy stuff. Um, then to start a job where you're partly based in HQ, in, in an office, uh, and in, a, in an environment where you're not hearing bells, you're not hearing the background sound of students, you're not thinking, right, I should be out on lunch duty. That was a, That, for me, was a very big adjustment um, and that's not to say I missed school and everybody keeps saying to me oh you must have missed school I actually didn't because I was ready to step out of it the only bit of school I missed was the bit which I used to finish every week with which was the debating society where you know 40 or 50 kids would come along and we would finish it with a big debate and I missed that a lot and I'm now building a new debating team at Moat Community College in Leicester with the with the team there and it's a, a very different crowd of kids who haven't done any debating but they are so hungry to do it well so that's keeping me in touch with that bit so the initial transition was odd the the day-to-day -day bit continues to be odd because I haven't done the job for a year yet that one day to one week is so varied you never quite know where you are and I'm still this week for example I'm staying in five hotels during the week and so you have that sense of waking up at five o'clock or whenever it is thinking right where where am I you know, all the time that is very disorientating I think people you do a job like this, we'll all say, yeah, we know exactly what you mean. And um, what can we expect from Askell over the next 12 months? Trying to do two or three things. Um, first of all, I'm interested in what, what does a trade union do in the 21st century? What's our role? If you're somebody who's been accused of something by a parent, for example, and you need support, at the moment, you can phone our hotline, you get fantastic support, you get 40 calls a day from people who are needing support. But actually, would artificial intelligence allow us to do other forms of support? So if you need a bit of advice about a policy you're writing, could you more quickly find that on our website than you can at the moment? Could we have webinars? Could we use other digital resources? So I'm interested in what could we do as a kind of modern trade union to provide professional services for you? And that's just a good, an interesting project. I think the bigger and more interesting bit, in a sense, is I'm, I'm convinced we cannot continue to flog the system in England in the way that it's being flogged, where we just use accountability measures, changes to qualifications, changes to the curriculum, and just expect that we can continue to make improvements like that. And I think there is an opportunity for us, given that we've got new people at Ofsted, new people at Ofqual, new people at the Department for Education, we've got a new chartered college, there are a lot of new kids on the block here, and I think for us to say, let's ask the bigger question, what do we want our young people to know, what do we want them to learn, what kind of skills, qualities, aptitudes are they going to need for a world which is going to have some changes, we can, it's, a diff it's, it's 
you've got to be careful about overstating the changes, but we know that artificial intelligence is going to change a lot. So what does that mean? If we're going to outpace the robots, what, what do human beings need? And we know the answer to that. They need to be more human. So the stuff we would take for granted, the empathy, the courtesy, the problem-solving, the humour, those things are going to be more important in a way. So what does that mean we do in schools? And it doesn't mean we squeeze out history and have humour lessons, but it does mean we use every opportunity to keep teaching to every child the kind of things which some children will get because of their background. And that's the social mobility thing. That's where extracurricular music, the arts, sport, debating, all of that kind of stuff which is being squeezed out needs to be pretty central there. So I'm hoping that what we can do is to frame a, a bigger debate. Uh, modern foreign languages is something we're going to be talking about Nick Gibb, talking to Nick Gibb about tomorrow, for example, because I think most of us would want children to do languages because languages are a great thing to do, not because they show up in the EBAC or in Progress 8. So how do we reframe that? Can we find examples of where there's terrific practice going on in modern foreign languages? So I think those people who were worried about my appointment will be surprised that what I'm trying to do is to frame all of this optimistically, positively, and actually try and set a bigger agenda, because it just seems to me that education in this country has a really kind of narrow parochial frame at the moment, and we need to lift ourselves out of it, because ultimately as school and college leaders, we're the custodians of young people who've got this one chance in school on our watch, we need them to have great experiences inside the classroom and also outside the classroom. Okay, well, I'm going to draw it to a close. I've got a penultimate question, but I think I already know the answer. I was going to ask who's been your biggest influence in your life so far, outside of family, if that might be. But you, you talked about this teacher. I think it probably would be Roy Sampson. He probably gets sick of me mentioning because he probably <laughs> doesn't remember anything about me at school, frankly. Because I, I wasn't a great a high flyer, I think. Uh, so it was a kind of covert uh, influence that he had. But it was an influence, and it was being very rigorous, academic, strict, funny, engaging, and he listened a lot. And you felt you could put points across to him and he was listening to you, even though he had years of experience. And uh, that sense of empathy was something which uh, he exuded. Yeah, it's very difficult to, to, to do that. I mean, that, uh, that's one of the challenges I guess we face is how, how do you teach a teacher to, to be all of those things yeah. and, and be good at those? Teachers are going to be more important, I think. I think technology is likely to step in and do some things so where you've just got routines and you just need to practice things the computer the robot will do that for you but where you need someone to be able to look you in the eye and to explain why that did or didn't work i think that, that human factor is going to continue to be really important yeah you? and keep the level of interest and engagement yeah yeah okay i'm going to ask uh, the final question if you were in charge of the education system in england for the day and you could implement one policy or structural change what would it be I think if it was literally for the day, I would say to everybody who works in schools, could you just stop doing the stuff which isn't impacting directly on children? And could you just go into a classroom and just explain something you love, something you're passionate about? Ignite children's interest in it, whether it's on the curriculum or not on the curriculum. Because somebody at a conference this morning made a point which just stuck with me. And he said, we talk about assessment all the time. We should be talking about learning. And I just think that if we had one day in which we don't talk about assessment, we don't talk about performance tables, progress aid, any of that stuff, we just get adults talking to students, listening to students, explaining things that we think are great things to learn for the sake of learning, we'd all feel incredibly refreshed. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. Um, okay, well, our final, my final question... Um, is to ask you if you can choose a final piece of music or song, whether it's a favourite piece or it's a current favourite, favourite of all time. Yeah, I haven't got a favourite of all time. My tastes uh, change. I've got a particular interest at the moment in uh, songs that tell stories. This is the English teacher in me. There's a song by Trish Yearwood called uh, On a Bus to St Cloud, which is a country song. And it's a song of incredible yearning for someone you don't quite get what the relationship is and I just think it's a song of immense beauty it starts like all the stuff I like with heavy production so you've got violins and stuff and then it goes into a very simple melody and a very simple plaintive way of singing and you don't quite know what the resolution to the song is so it, it ticks lots of boxes for me musically and narratively and it's uh, on a bus to St Cloud
on a bus to St. Cloud, Minnesota. I thought I saw you there with the snow falling down around you like a silent prayer. Once on a street in New York City with the jazz and the sin in the air. And once on a cold LA freeway. Going nowhere, and it's strange, but it's true. Church in downtown New Orleans. I got down on my knees and prayed, and I wept in the arms of Jesus for the choice He made. We were just getting to the good part, just getting past the mystery. Just like you to disagree. to St. Cloud, Minnesota I thought I saw you there With the snow falling down around you Like a silent Jeff Barton